DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha, presents Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. Pope Francis, in his encyclical letter, Lumen Fidei, The Light of Faith, said that faith's past, the act of Jesus' love which brought new life to the world, comes down to us through the memory of others, witnesses, and is kept alive in that one remembering subject, which is the Church. The Church is a mother who teaches us to speak the language of faith. In that spirit, this series of conversations with Archbishop Lucas brings the many aspects of the Catholic faith and why it matters, not only to the individual, but also to families, communities, and the world at large. Why it matters an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. The Second Ecumenical Council of the Vatican, commonly known as the Second Vatican Council or Vatican II, was the 21st Ecumenical Council of the Roman Catholic Church. Some have called it the most important religious event of the 20th century. The Council met in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome for four periods, or sessions, each lasting between 8 to 12 weeks, in the autumn of each of the four years, 1962 to 1965. Preparation for the Council took three years from the summer of 1959 to the autumn of 1962. The Council was opened on the 11th of October, 1962, by John XXIII, who was Pope during the preparation and the first session. And it was closed on the 8th of December, 1965, by Pope Paul VI, Pope during the last three sessions after the death of John XXIII on the 3rd of June, 1963. During the course of the subsequent episodes of this program, we'll cover the major conciliar documents— they were issued from the Council Fathers, chiefly known as the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Dogmatic Constitution on the Liturgy, Lumen Gentium, the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation, De Verbum, and the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, Gaudium et Spes. We now begin our introductory discussion on Vatican II. Welcome, Archbishop Lucas. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be with you. Oh, I am thrilled that we are going to have a conversation about Vatican II. I remember when I first came into the church when I was 19, and I had no idea. I didn't even know where the Vatican was, to be honest with you. I just was so excited about becoming Catholic and entering the church, and that was long before our CIA processes went on. But when I got older, that I became aware of this event, Vatican II, and I ended up having a study in university about the particular documents. And I have to say, when I was reading them, they're so beautiful. They became a great nurture of my faith throughout the years. I've had a little different experience, but a sim- similarly rich one, you know, in terms of getting immersed in the teachings of Vatican II. And I look forward 
to these discussions with you. My hope would be that those who listen might be drawn into a deeper understanding of the council itself, but then also be motivated to pick up the documents and actually read them. We should make clear at the beginning that Vatican II was a meeting. It was an ecumenical council. When somebody says Vatican II, I think young people today might not know, is that a ship or is that a building or what, <laughs> what is right. it? It took place in the, in the Vatican. So it was the second ecumenical council that took place there in that spot. So it's called the Second Vatican Council or popularly Vatican II. It was a council that was the inspiration of Pope John XXIII, and he is the one who called in the church for this extraordinary meeting with himself and all of the bishops from around the world. They were the active participants in the work of the council, but it it was really meant to draw the whole church in and together and then to have an influence on the church. We're still very much feeling that influence today. It was an extraordinary event on so many different levels when you think about it, because I've heard it said it's the largest meeting that has ever occurred in human history. You know, when we think of the context of what an actual meeting, not like a conference, but the sheer number of participants who came together, 2,200 bishops, you had theologians, you had the mass media that was never present for anything like this before. Just the scope of being able to do business and actually converse together to accomplish a task. And I don't think there's been anything quite like it since. Well, there's really nothing quite like it in any case. Uh, You're you're right. You know, they built bleachers in St. Peter's Basilica so that there would be seats for all of the people during the meetings. Anybody who's interested can Google some of the photographs of the sessions of, of the Second Vatican Council, and it's extraordinary to see what was happening in St. Peter's very appropriately, but not how it normally looks. It was an extraordinary coming together of all of the bishops from the world, along with the Holy Father, to to exercise their responsibility to teach and to govern the church uh, together. That goes on all the time, of course, but to have everybody in one place with a particular focus, or in this case, a set of things that they were looking at and wanting to reflect on and to teach about, it is an extraordinary thing. There's only been 21 of them in the history of the church. In many people's lifetimes, there's no ecumenical council that happened. So it really was very much an extraordinary event. You look at its place in history, too. The 19th and 20th centuries were some of the most cataclysmic moments in human history prior to Vatican II. You could even go back to the the French Revolution and how that changed how the world, or at least Western Europe and the Americas maybe, how they looked at the church, especially in France, the great daughter of the church. Priests, bishops, nuns, uh, religious orders are being killed wiped out, and that the whole structure of the respect of the faith in the world had changed. And then you enter into the 20th century with the wars and trying to just survive all that. Finally, there's a pause and and able to, to gather to reflect on what's happened to the enormity of human uh, mankind. You know, we have, as Americans, a kind of limited view of things. And of mm-hmm. course, in the late 1950s, which is when Pope John XXIII was, was elected pope, and then pretty soon... After his election, he announced that that there would be this council. It began officially in 1962. The preparations began almost right away. But that was, if you want to call it, kind of a high point for the church and for, at least within our experience in the United States, of peace and of security and prosperity. Not everybody was experiencing that in the same way, of course, we know. There were many problems in our culture and many people who were, who were suffering in a variety of ways. But when you looked at the structure of the church, at the number of Catholics, the amount of vocations, the founding of Catholic schools and new parishes, institutions, almost all across the country was an extraordinary time. 
And so I think for many people here, it was easy enough to say, well, what's the problem? The, the whole thing was problem-oriented. But really, as you were saying, the Holy Father did feel that there was an, a need to look at the recent history and, and then respond with the message, with the hope of the gospel, and to try to chart a course for the church in the world, which is where, where the church is, until the Lord comes again for the coming uh, generations. And as you recount, you know, the, there was turmoil. There always is somewhere. And even before what you were mentioning, you know, the shock of the Reformation, the life of the church, the Council of Trent, previous ecumenical council was called in response to that. And the church was reeling from that and trying to get her footing for several centuries. So there, there was a, a fair amount of turmoil. But immediately preceding this, and this would have been the lived experience of the Holy Father and of people in many places in the world, Europe particularly, but, not, but certainly not, not just there, the, the two world wars, the first half of the 20th century, where you had powerful nations who were made up of primarily professed Christians, many Catholics, who were trying to wipe each other out and who nearly succeeded. These were not wars that took place on a remote battlefield somewhere, but they took place in, in cities and in the countryside, you know, in places where, where people live. In cultures that were so rich in terms of Christianity, just for one example, we had built beautiful cathedrals and then spent a great deal of effort blowing them up in other people's cities and, and towns. On top of that, a deliberate attempt to wipe out the Jewish people in the countries of, of Europe particularly, but not only there. So it, it was horrific. And in 1959, when the Holy Father announced the council, there was still much rebuilding to be done, you know, in terms of the physical environment of, of people in Europe, but again, not only there in Pacific areas, other places in the world, and that had really ripped apart the social cohesion. So as I say, we were somewhat isolated from that. You know, we, in our country, we participated in the Second World War, but it didn't take place hardly at all on our soil. It touched people and it touched, touched families. He spoke about it himself, but we can reflect too that the Holy Father, other leaders in the church, in a very prayerful way, asked themselves, "How could this have happened? How did the the gospel? How did the the love of Jesus Christ, which should characterize the church herself structurally, you might say, but also the lives of of Christian people, how did that become so weak, or so misguided that there was no way to avoid such a catastrophe? There were cultural shifts, partly because of the violence of the two world wars, but also the development of technology, the Effect of the enlightenment of the, sort of the scientific look at at what life is about and what truth means and and so forth. The church really needed to respond. I think as we get into the the teachings of the Second Vatican Council, we see the church is, is very capable of responding, and we have beautiful teachings that help guide us through all of this. But it wasn't so obvious uh, to to everyone at that time. On top of everything else, and I I know I've lost sense of it on occasion, that even the structures, I mentioned the French Revolution, but that that was a dramatic point where even the structure of the state changed. Monarchies were collapsing everywhere. And in the United States, we've ex- we experienced it too. It wasn't a type of revolution to the extent, like with the French Revolution, but there was an understanding that because we had in the United States, I think it was Tocqueville that said they seem to have this discipline in the United States where they, they go to church every Sunday and they hear they need to feed their hungry, clothe the naked, help the poor. And so that tempered, that element of religion was still in. But we had spoken in the United States about a separation of church and state. And that was something the church needed to come to an understanding of having lived in the dynamic where it was closely associated with a monarchy that governed. 
felt that the that the monarchy needed to be of a Catholic, you know, background to be a true king or queen or sovereign. So the church needed to adjust to see how their place and how they interact with one another. Isn't that true? Um, sure. There, there were d- different models of government that were had been developing, mm-hmm. and ours, you know, would be an example of that. But I think it's not wasn't a just a foregone conclusion in everybody's mind that that it would be good for to move in the direction of democracy or or republic as we have here. And of course, we know ours wasn't. And hasn't been perfect, you know, in terms of respect for individual rights and dignity, and it still isn't. So how to live in a variety of settings, preach the gospel in, in a variety of settings and cultures. There had been, through the first part of, of the 20th century, it continues a, a tremendous missionary impulse in Africa and in, in Asia, and the church was beginning to grow and to flourish, but the culture was very different from European culture rooted uh, mainly in the Roman Empire, not totally in that, but how to bring the light of the gospel to be faithful to the teachings and the tradition of the church, but also uh, allow the church to be refreshed and enriched by, by the new cultural settings and, in which it was being, being lived in and experienced. You know, a lot of challenges, but I think the, many of them really good, happy challenges. They we reflect on the areas where it seems like the gospel is not having an effect, where the salt and the light that Jesus talks about are not permeating, not making a difference. And so we think, and the Holy Father wanted us at that time to think, how can we Stir that up. How can give new life, new vigor, not new doctrine, not remake the church from the ground up, but rediscover the teachings of the gospel, the, the richness of the scripture, and be recommitted to what Jesus has asked us to do to bring the light of the gospel to, to the end. We'll return to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, Tune in, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. The Creed I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. 
I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. What makes it so remarkable that particularly Pope John XXIII would bring together all of the bishops. I mean, this collegiality had never really been experienced to this extent where every bishop from around the world comes together and then in this, again, quote, meeting, unquote, be allowed to speak and to speak from their reality because the church in Oceania or Asia is having a different experience than the one in Africa as the one in South America, and you bring them all together. And then this great trust by John the Twenty Third to say, the Holy Spirit is here, and we know the Lord is here when two or more are gathered, and he was allowing that to happen. And that's quite remarkable, isn't it? But as he he had it was a man of great faith, of course, and you're right, it was an, an indication of his faith to, to bring everybody together. Similar things had been done in the in the history of the church, of course, but travel was much easier and, and more possible from various parts of the world, so that bishops could get to Rome by the 1960s. But it's important to remember that there was a great deal of preparation that went into this. So it wasn't as if the Holy Father just called all the bishops together and, and said, "Well, let, you know, let's just chat about a few things." There were preparatory documents and a lot of work that went on to prepare so that there could be a coherent discussion about various topics and a, a mechanism for, for developing documents, teaching, that could then be promulgated. But as is always the case when you bring so, so many people together who are prayerful and, and thoughtful and inviting the guidance of the Holy Spirit as, as they did uh, day by day, some unexpected things happen and really powerful and beautiful things happen that couldn't be scripted. They're not at all uncharacteristic of the life of the church or some novelty, so much as a, a flowering again, as we talk about in the in the church, something that's ancient and new at the same time, and both rooted in ultimately in Jesus Christ, in the apostolic tradition, but also a, a modern manifestation of it for a new time and a new set of circumstances. Yeah, you talk about the preparation. I mean, this is a, a time, too, where because of our ability to be able to look at history— 
to be able to go not only anthropologically, but archaeology would break open new things, the sciences, and also being able to go back to the original sources, to go back even further than, say, the, the medieval period of Thomas Aquinas, but to go back to the fathers of the church. In a lot of ways, they didn't teach in that necessarily a university type of setup, but they were more from their sermons, their pastoral approach to their people. All of that was a part of that preparation, and it was a lot, wasn't it? Well, it was, and I think, you know, like in any other institution or experience, there, there are sort of layers of, of experience of, of teaching of life over many generations, and so it wasn't as if the teaching of the fathers had been lost. We had all that, but it wasn't so often adverted to in that time. Was Scholars did, of course, but ordinary persons wouldn't, or, or maybe in, you know, in terms of ordinary teaching. There was, you know, the scientific method, which seemed to be somewhat threatening to the life of the church in, in one sense. It really isn't, I don't think. But it enabled us, as you said, through, through archaeology, through rediscovering manuscripts and, and texts, being able to discern what's authentic, scientific methods that were used and historical methods to look at the scripture, at the composition of scripture and the way that we might understand it and not putting aside at all the, the inspired nature of the, of the Word of God, but being able to look at it in some new ways with a different kind of understanding. There were a lot of tools that, that were available, again, in the, by the mid-20th century that have been there before. So you kind of imagine the Holy Fathers asking the bishops, let's just go into the storehouse and drag out all the treasures, and let's open them all up and see what we can use in, in a new way in this time in which we're living. And how can we set the church on a course it's the Lord's church, and he charts the course, but we need, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to discover what, what that can be. It, it was Pope John's hope that we not skip over some richness in our tradition, in our experience over all these, these centuries that could really be helpful uh, for us now. That preparatory work again, it wasn't just John the Twenty Third's Vatican Council it really, as you said, Pius Twelfth had already begun to look at some of the subjects that would be brought forward, breaking up of those encyclicals of Mystigi Corpus leaps to my mind. But there are so many others. It was, it was just like a, a great awakening seemed to be coming forth. And that's a good thing. I mean, that was a good thing during this period, wouldn't you think? Yeah, there was a great uh, liturgical renewal going on all through the 20th century. It wasn't in every place and, and everybody didn't, didn't experience it. But I experienced it. You know, I grew up in St. Louis and there was a very rich tradition of study and a desire to introduce people to the richness of the sacred liturgy in their own experience, not simply talking about it or talking about how it's done, you know, in Rome or someplace, but making it an experience in, in parishes. Uh, Monsignor Martin Hellriegel was a, a leader of, of that in the Archdiocese of St. Louis, but really in, in the country and in the church along with others. The understanding that the liturgy could be a richer experience for us. People were going to Mass in great numbers, so it's not like people didn't have faith in, in the Mass or didn't want to be there or in the other sacraments. But as the Second Vatican Council would open up for us, there was a chance for us to experience and participate in a way that um, we maybe had been missing out on a little bit. But but that impetus had, had been already, as you were saying, you know, at, at work in the church over, over many decades. And it was done almost always, in conjunction with the bishops and with the Holy See. And so it was part of the life of the church. It wasn't somebody's crazy idea, very rooted in our tradition, and in a desire to go deeper into the Paschal mystery and to an understanding and experience of it, not only for priests or for scholars, but for everybody. 
and we'll be talking more about the Constitution on the sacred liturgy and all the different aspects of the other documents as well. But just as you said, for example, we call it the Norvis Ordo, the new order of the Mass. But actually, there would be those who would argue that it's grounded. It all has its roots in actually what has always been the ancient church. All of it. It has elements of all of it. It's not necessarily new, but it's representing in a way, don't you think? Right. Well, I mean, certainly with regard to the liturgy, there were noticeable changes uh, in the experience of people, you know, as the council was winding down and, and as some of the, as the liturgical reforms were being implemented. That was, a, I suppose, a shock for some. It was a welcome for others. But it, it was something that you could sort of see and feel and experience week, uh, week by week. But the whole purpose of the council, of course, is to see that it's not a, a disjunction or, or that we're, it's not a new liturgy. It's a, a reform of the rites of our worship that are both consistent with our tradition, rooted in our tradition, but then also responds to what might be seen as an, an opportunity, a need. And really, it's kind of right at the heart of the discussion about, about the council. The whole aim of the council was not to change things, but for us to change, <laughs> to, for people to change, and to be transformed more and more into living disciples of Jesus Christ, to a deeper experience of his, his living body, the church, a deeper experience of, of the mysteries of, of our faiths. So the expressions of that, the things that, that we would experience in the liturgy or in, in how things are, are taught, how things are even used. The council called on us to make broader use of scripture in our teaching, in our own prayer, in the celebration of the sacraments. So all that was encouraged by, by the council, not just so we would have a, a new experience or that we'd have new things, but so that we could be renewed. And in some ways, that's the that remains the challenge of for us in the church. It's a challenge always. But I think it's part of the reason why I even want to have these conversations about the Second Vatican Council, because there's so much still waiting for us there, I think, in the council's teaching and in the hopes of the council fathers for our own renewal in the faith, so that then we can fulfill the desire of Jesus that we enter him to renew the world around us. We'll continue our conversation with Archbishop Lucas in our next episode. You've been listening to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas.